question, and this really is what's sometimes called presuppositional apologetics, and we'll talk about why that is. And normally my frustration when giving this presentation is it's hard to cover it in an hour, but I get, I get four sessions this time, so I'm excited about this. Hopefully I can actually do the topic a little bit of justice, and that should be good. Now, some of you have studied this topic. Some of you have studied it quite in depth, and uh, but I'm not presuming that on everyone because some of you maybe have, are not at all familiar with it. So in this first presentation, I'm going to go through the basics of this, and then we'll get into a little more of the uh, the richness of the topic uh, in the in the following weeks. Uh, is there an ultimate proof of creation? And, and, you know, I because I specialize in creation since I work at the Institute for Creation Research, that's my focus in apologetics. But I have to tell you, this method will work on anything. You can defend the Christian worldview. In fact, what I'm going to show you is that we're defending the Christian worldview in its entirety. I'm not just defending creation. It's just that's the thing I tend to focus on. But I'm defending the Christian worldview, and I'm defending it against anything else. And that's the neat thing about presuppositional apologetics, is it will help you to defend the Christian worldview against anyone who dares to challenge the authority of God. And it's a very powerful method, and I encourage you to learn it. Uh, I, I have to tell you, I when I was um, going through my undergraduate and graduate work, uh, when I, uh, graduate school at University of Colorado, getting my doctorate in astrophysics, I mean, that, that might sound impressive to some people, but I have to tell you, I was kind of timid when it came to witnessing, when it came to apologetics, even though I knew a lot of information. I knew a lot of the science. But I was intimidated because there's always somebody who knows more. And there's always somebody who knows some evidence that you don't know about, and how do you deal with that? But see, the thing I want to show you this morning and in the following weeks is that when you understand this method of apologetics, it doesn't matter. You can go up against somebody who is, who's got a PhD. It doesn't matter what, what field of study they're in. And you can show that unless they've received Christ as Savior, unless their worldview is biblical, it's foolish. And you can help them to see that. And, of course, we're doing this not as some sort of academic game. That's not what it's about. We're Christians, and we want to preach the gospel message. We want to make disciples of all nations. That's what Christ has commanded us to do. And so in the process of preaching the gospel message, there are objections that come, right? People say, well, no, you can't trust the Bible because of X, Y, and Z. And apologetics is about helping people over those objections, right? It's about showing people that, no, you can trust in God's word from the very beginning. You're reasoning with them, as Paul did uh, every day. He would reason with the people and help them to see that God's word is true from the beginning. That's what I want to show you how to do in the next few weeks. And I think this will be very exciting for you. If it's uh, if you're like me and you're kind of, I'm, I'm actually very introverted, which may surprise you because I do a lot of public speaking. But um, this is something that, you know, once we get on, once I'm talking with somebody, once once the topic goes to apologetics, I, I can relax because because I know that that uh, unless they're a Christian, I'm going to win the debate. And I don't and I don't say that out of any kind of intellectual superiority. It's because my position is defensible and theirs isn't. And that's what it comes down to. And I've learned how to do it. And I want to share this with you because it's very exciting. Uh, what I'm going to share with you in the next few weeks is not a gimmick. It's not a trick. It's a way of revealing truth. And so if you're thinking, well, I can I can use this method to win other kinds of debates, you can't. This will only work in defending the Christian worldview. All it does is reveal truth. That's it. And so if you're, you're thinking you could win a debate with you know, your spouse about, you know, what, it, it's not going to work that way. It's only going to work on defending the Christian worldview. That's all it's good for. But it's really powerful. 
And it, in fact, I would say it is a, it is a proof. I'm going to call this a proof of the biblical worldview, an ultimate proof in the sense that it's irrefutable. I'm going to give you a conclusive argument that demonstrates that the Bible really is true, that God exists and is who he claims he is in the scriptures. And some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, you know, is that, what about faith? Well, I want you to put a pin in that because we're going to come back to that because it doesn't nullify the idea of faith. It's just people have a misconception of what faith is. They think faith is believing in something just for the sake of believing, but that's not biblical faith. That's fideism, just believing in something for no particular reason. And the Bible doesn't endorse that kind of belief. The Bible endorses a conviction of things not seen. That's biblical faith. When you are confident in something that you have not perceived with your senses, and I'm very confident in the Christian worldview because I can demonstrate it. Okay. In fact, I'll see, you will see it self-demonstrating actually. Now, when you use this, this ultimate proof on people, and I'm going to encourage you to do so, and you're challenging them and getting them to think through the issues, they may or may not convert. They may or may not say, well, yeah, you, you've got me there. I've got to be, I've got to become a consistent Christian. Now, I have had that happen. But they, they might say, well, I'm, you know, I'm not conceding. And that discourages some people. Because people have the misconception that it's our job to convert people. That's not your job. And you can't. The Bible describes unbelievers as being spiritually dead. And you can't resurrect a dead man. Only God can do that. But fortunately, God hasn't, God hasn't asked us to convert people. He's, a, he's called us to give a defense. We're to make an argument, to give a rational defense of the Christian worldview. Whether or not the person converts, that's up to God. If you presented a good case and you did it graciously in the right spirit, and that's something we have to work on too. But if you did it in the right way, whatever happens, it's up to God. You should, you should be happy if you did it, if you made a good case and they couldn't come back from it. Whether or not they convert, it's up to God. It's, I'm not giving you an ultimate persuasion. I'm giving you an ultimate proof. There's a difference. People sometimes are not persuaded even by a very good argument. Isn't that right? That doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the argument. It just means there's something wrong with the person. People are not always rational. They don't always follow an argument through to its conclusion. Conversely, people sometimes are persuaded by very bad arguments. That's what logical fallacies are. Logical fallacies are bad arguments that people tend to find convincing, which is why they're common. So, again, uh, just because the person doesn't cry uncle, that doesn't mean I don't have them in a headlock, Right? In terms of the, the conclusiveness of the proof, it is conclusive. Well, before I get into the ultimate proof, I want to show you some other kinds of arguments that people would use to try and demonstrate, in, the, in this case, biblical creation. And there's nothing wrong with these lines of evidence, but I want to show you how they fall short of an ultimate proof so that, by contrast, when we start talking about presuppositional apologetics, you'll see how it's different. So some of the evidence that, that uh, people would like to use to demonstrate biblical creation... Uh, for example, laws of information. Dr. Werner Gitt, one of the world's experts on information science, talks about the, the transmission of information, like a book being copied. And he says, when its progress along the chain of transmission events is traced backwards, every piece of information leads to a mental source, the mind of the sender. What he's saying there is that information doesn't just sort of spontaneously accumulate. It's generated by a mind. And you know that. If you pick up a book, you know that somebody ultimately wrote it. Even though that book may have been copied many times, might have been copied by machines that are not intelligent, but you know ultimately it came from a mind. It came from intelligence. And creationists often point out that's very consistent with what we see in DNA because DNA has the instructions to make you. 
That's a lot of information. You've got 3 billion base pairs in your DNA, 3 billion instructions that make your physical form and perhaps to some extent your personality and amazing. I mean, we think we can get a lot of information on a Blu-ray. That's impressive. God put the information to make you on a molecule. That's awesome. And where did you get that information? You got it from their parents. They got it from their parents and so on, all the way back to Adam and Eve. They got it from God. It goes back to a mind. You see the laws of information tell us that. It's consistent. It's not consistent with evolution, where information gradually increases in DNA. Mutations don't help. They might help you survive under a certain circumstance, but they don't add brand new instructions to the DNA. And Dr. Lise Bettner has has demonstrated as much. He says not even one mutation has been observed that adds a little information to the genome. So you see how genetics confirms biblical creation, what the Bible teaches. It's certainly not consistent with what you'd expect if evolution were true. Or we could talk about uh, the age of the earth. That's something I kind of specialize in because the Bible indicates the world that's thousands of years old, God created in six days. It's clear from context. Those are ordinary, approximately 24-hour days and so on. And it's a few thousand years ago based on those genealogies that you love to read before you go to bed. And so-and-so begets so-and-so. And you add those up, you get a few thousand years. And that's consistent with the scientific evidence that we find. You might have heard of that carbon dating. Some, some people have heard or have thought that carbon dating gives millions of years. It doesn't. Carbon dating is our friend. Now, there are other methods scientists use to try and come up with the idea that the Earth's billions of years old, but not carbon. Because with carbon dating, there's a certain variety of carbon called C14, and it decays quickly. It decays in a few thousand years. And yet we find it in diamonds, which tells me that those diamonds can't be millions or billions of years old because the C14 would have run out a long time ago, you see. And so the fact that we find carbon in diamonds and in fossils, dinosaur fossils, you know we found C14 in dinosaur fossils? Isn't that interesting? And that tells me they can't be anywhere near millions of years old. They're much more recent than that. And so geology confirms a recent creation. As the Bible indicates, it doesn't confirm millions of years of evolution. We go out into the realm of outer space and talk about comets. Comets are made up of ice and dirt, and they orbit around the sun in elliptical paths. They come very close, and they slingshot back out. When they're far away, no problem. The ice remains frozen. But when they come close to the sun, that icy material gets heated up and vaporizes into space, and that's what forms a comet's tail, which means every time you see a comet, it's getting smaller. Every time. And, and here's the thing. We know the rate at which the material is being depleted away. We know how big comets are. They're not very, the source of the material is a few miles across. It's a, big, a few miles ball, ball of ice, basically, and dirt. And uh, they don't last that long. We can calculate it. A typical comet can last no more than about 100,000 years, which is no problem if the solar system is 6,000 years old, right? It still have plenty of comets, and we see them. But if it's 4.5 billion years old, it should have run out of comets <laughs> about 4.5 billion years ago, right? And they're still there. And I know they don't last long. I use the SOHO spacecraft in my doctoral research, and it's able to spot comets as they get really close to the sun. It's got an instrument that's designed to do that. And I've seen comets that have gone behind the sun, and that's it. I've seen comets that no longer exist because they were totally destroyed in one pass. So comets do not last billions of years. On and on and on. I have other presentations I do on these topics that show that the evidence is consistent with creation, and there's value in that. Don't get me wrong. There's value in showing people how evidence lines up with creation. But this is not a proof. It's not conclusive. Because for every line of evidence that I can come up with, a critic can always come up with a rescuing device to protect his worldview from this evidence. In the case of comets, for example, my secular colleagues are well aware of comets. They, they know that comets can't last billions of years. They can do the same math I can do. And so they said, well, there must be 
a, an Oort cloud, basically a comet generator that makes new comets, you see. And the idea is that this, there's this big sphere of potential comets orbiting out beyond, beyond the farthest planets where we can't see it, they're too far away. And every now and then one of these little potential comets is kicked into the inner solar system and becomes a brand new comet. So you see as the old comets disintegrate, new ones replace them. Isn't that neat? And so you see that way the solar system can be billions of years old after all. That's an example of a rescuing device because there's no evidence for it. But it, it does allow uh, secularists to deal with the fact that we f have data that seem to indicate a young solar system and yet protect their worldview that the solar system's old, you see. Now, if I were to ask a secular astronomer, do you have any evidence of the Oort cloud? If he's honest, he'll say, well, no. And if he's clever, he'll say, but you can't prove it's not there. And that's true. I can't disprove the existence of an undetectable Oort cloud. It's undetectable. How can I disprove that, you see? And for every line of evidence you present, there's always going to be a rescuing device. If you're, if you're dialoguing with someone who is sufficiently clever, that person will be able to come up with a rescuing device. What about information and DNA? Well, there could be some unknown source that we haven't discovered yet that produces that information. What about C14 and diamonds? Well, there's some kind of contamination that got in there after the fact that, that added it because we know they're billions of years old, you see? And by the way, you have rescuing devices too. If I were to ask you about, or a critic comes up to you and asks you about an alleged contradiction in Scripture, how do you reconcile that verse with that verse? Maybe it's a couple of verses you're not that familiar with. You don't know the answer right away. Do you say, well, yeah, those are contradictory. I can't be a Christian anymore and throw it away. No, you say, well, there must be an explanation. Give me time, I'll find it, right? We all have our rescuing devices because we all have a worldview. We have a way of thinking about the evidence, and that controls how our interpretation of the evidence. So we have the same world, though. It's just my, my secular colleague looks at the world, and he sees things like comets, and he says, oh, there must be an Oort cloud because he, he believes the, the world's billions of years old. I, I'm thinking in terms of biblical history. I look and see comets, and I say, yeah, the solar system's young. We draw different interpretations of the very same evidence because we have a different worldview, a different way of thinking about the evidence. We all have the same facts, right? We have, I have access to the same stars and galaxies as my secular colleagues. We do science pretty much the same way in terms of operational science, how the, how the universe works today. We do that pretty much the same way. But we have a different worldview. We have a different way of thinking about the world in which we live. And you can think of those like mental glasses, and uh, just like some of us wear glasses physically, but we all wear mental glasses. We all have a worldview, a way of thinking about the world, and that affects what we see. And I like to think of the Bible like prescription lenses that are designed just for you. You put them on, they give you the correct view of history. You see the world as it really is. Things come into focus. I like to think of evolution, or for that matter, any alternative to Christianity, like red glasses. And you put those on, you'll say, wow, the world is red. Well, the world is not red, but that's what you see because you're wearing the wrong glasses. Now, I realize evolutionists will say, no, you're the ones wearing the wrong glasses. And we're going to have to argue for that. But my point is the debate is not so much about what we see in the world as the glasses we're wearing that we use to see the world. And that's something that I think is profound. And if you get that, boy, it's really going to help. Some people like to think, oh, you know, not me. I don't wear these mental glasses. Well, you do. Everybody does. We all have what are called presuppositions. Presuppositions are your most basic beliefs about reality. They're not just any old assumption. They're an assumption that you hold to very tightly. It's kind of at the core of your being. And that those presuppositions determine how you evaluate the evidence. 
and you have them before you evaluate the evidence. For example, the reliability of your senses. You probably believe, as do I, that your senses are basically reliable. It probably didn't occur to you when you look up here to, to see me that, well, that's probably a hologram. I mean, it could be, but, and, or if you were to touch me, you'd say, wow, I wish I could rely on that, but it's probably just, you know, some a malfunction in my fingers, uh, or, or the sound that you're hearing right now, did it occur to you that that could all be fake? Maybe you're just a brain in a jar, and all of this is illusion, and it's being fed into, you know, by electrical inputs into your brain, right? And, uh, you know, people have been, been uh, exploring those issues since movies like The Matrix came out, where, you know, is, is this real, or is it illusion? At least, at least it gets people thinking about, how do you know what you know? Well, in the Christian worldview, my senses are basically reliable because they've been designed by God, and so I can trust that, at least in terms... Now, of course, there's the fall, and we'll have to deal with that as well. But yeah, that, that's an example of a presupposition, the basic reliability of your senses. Suppose you come to a rock on the side of the road, and you say, I'm going to be absolutely objective, because that, that's the way scientists are, right? We're, we're absolutely objective. We have no presuppositions whatsoever. Well, that's not true. You're laughing, and you should, because that's not the case. You say, I'm going, to, oh, I'm going to be objective, though. I'm going to determine the composition of that rock. Totally objective. Well, you've already made some decisions about the rock. You've assumed that it's there just because you see it. You've assumed that your senses are basically reliable. That is a presupposition, right? You can't get away from that. We all have our presuppositions. The reliability of your memory, that's a, that's a presupposition. Presumably, you think that the memories you have actually happened. How do you know that? How do you know your memory is basically reliable? You can say, well, Dr. Lyle, I took a test two weeks ago. It was a memory test. I got an A on it. I'm going to ask, how do you know you took a memory test two weeks ago, right? <laughs> you see, oh, I remember taking, oh, yeah. You see, you'd have to already know that your memory is reliable in order to argue you correctly remember that your memory is reliable. That's the nature of a presupposition. Laws of logic are presuppositions. That there are these laws that govern correct reasoning, like the law of non-contradiction which says you can't have A and not A at the same time and in the same relationship, right? That's a presupposition. Can you prove that there are laws of logic? Now, I think you can, but not without using them, right? Because if you're going to make a logical argument, you're going to have to use laws of logic to do it. That's the nature of a presupposition. Now, some people, again, might say, not me. I don't have beliefs about how to come to the evidence. And I'm going to say that is a very interesting belief about how to come to the evidence. The philosophy that we should have no philosophy is itself a philosophy. It's just a very bad one because it's immediately self-refuting. Now, your presuppositions taken together form your worldview. So I'm going to use those terms interchangeably. Your worldview is all of your presuppositions uh, together. And the kicker is creationists and evolutionists have different worldviews, different sets of presuppositions, and therefore different rules for interpreting what the evidence means, which is why a creationist and evolutionist can look at the very same fossil and come to very different conclusions about how it got there, its significance in terms of history, and so on and so forth. Because they have a different way, different rules for interpreting the evidence. And we're, you're going to find, too, that presuppositions are hierarchical. Some are more basic than others. And we all have an ultimate presupposition. We have one that's more basic than any others. And uh, that would be your ultimate standard. And for the, for the creationist, for the Christian, that should be the Bible. I'm not saying that it is for all Christians, but I'm saying it should be. That should be our most foundational commitment. Now, I do have secondary standards, right? I do believe that my senses are basically reliable. But you know, that's not my ultimate standard because I know that my senses can be fooled. Have you ever seen an optical illusion? 
I, I should have brought one. I have one that actually makes a little virtual image of anything you put inside it, and you can stick your finger right. It's a little image, and you can stick your finger right through it. Huh. Your eyes are telling you it's there. Your hand's telling you it's not. Now what are you going to do? Right? Your senses are not infallible. They can be fooled. They can be. And so that can't be my ultimate standard. The Bible is going to be my ultimate standard because it's infallible, you see. Anything that's fallible can't be your ultimate standard because then you wouldn't know how to judge whether it's accurate or not. You'd need a greater standard to tell you when it's accurate or not. Now, for evolutionists, the ultimate standard, it's, it can be different for different evolutionists, but often it's naturalism or strict empiricism, one of those two. Naturalism is the belief that nature is all that there is. Everything that happens, happens within the laws of physics and chemistry and so on. And so you certainly can't have any kind of supernatural miracles or anything like that. And then empiricism is the belief that all truth claims are answered by observation. If you want to know something, you better observe it yourself, okay? And of course, I think some truth claims are answered that way. There's no doubt there. But the strict empiricist says, no, all truth claims are answered by empirical means. And so the reason that we draw different conclusions about the evidence is because we have these different sets of presuppositions, different ultimate standards. Now, the problem with most apologetic methods that Christians use is that they are what we might call evidential. And I'm not going to split that into classical versus evidential versus, I mean, there's different names for them. But they all basically indicate that evidence, external evidence, is how you decide what worldview is right, whether it's the Bible or, or something else. But there's a problem when you use evidence to try and uh, demonstrate your worldview, the problem is your worldview tells you what to make of the evidence, you see. You're trying to evaluate the greater thing by the lesser thing, and that's a problem. And I have a silly illustration I like to use to demonstrate this. There was a man who thought that he was dead. He was convinced that he himself was dead. I've told this story many times. It turns out there actually is a condition for that, believe it or not. But uh, in any case, this is, just a, this is just a parable. There's a man who thought he was dead, and he's very depressed. He didn't like being dead. And his doctor is explaining to him, look, fellow, you're, you're perfectly healthy. And the guy says, you know, you, you can walk and you can talk. And the guy says, well, yeah, but people can have, you know, bodies can have muscle spasms even after clinical death. That could explain my ability to walk and talk. And the doctor says, but, but look, I have medical charts showing you're perfectly healthy. And the guy says, yeah, but medical charts can be falsified. And maybe you got the name swapped and... You know, maybe, who knows if you're interpreting that right? And the doctor says, okay, I'm going to prove to you. I'm going to prove to you that you're not dead. Do dead men bleed? And the guy thinks about it for a minute. Well, the circulatory system would be stopped, so no dead men don't bleed. And the doctor very quickly takes a little pin, pricks the guy in the hand, sure enough, a little blood. See, you're bleeding. To which the man responds, well, how about that? I guess dead men do bleed, right? <laughs> Silly example, but did the doctor have evidence of his position? Sure, a guy could walk and talk, he had the medical charts, the guy could bleed. And there's nothing wrong with those lines of evidence. But you see, they didn't convince the guy because for every evidence, he was able to come up with a rescuing device to explain how that evidence would fit into his worldview, his preconception, his presupposition that he himself was dead. And so you see, if you're just throwing evidence at people, they're just going to interpret it in light of their worldview. And if their worldview is wrong, that's not going to accomplish anything, is it? People think, well, see, here's what we do to show people, you know, to demonstrate biblical creation. Fossils, for example. I think fossils are great evidence that the Bible's true. They are, in, that, in the sense that they confirm what I'd expect given the worldwide flood. There was, a, there was a massive flood covered the land, and so we find fossil, we find fossil fish 
on land. We find marine organisms buried on top of Mount Everest. Of course there was a worldwide flood. I think fossils are great evidence of that. But I'm looking at the evidence properly through the lens of Scripture. My secular colleague, what's he going to say when I demonstrate all this evidence for the worldwide flood? He's going to say, that's not how I see it. Here's how I think the fossils were deposited. Gradually, over millions of years, there was no worldwide flood. And, we're, and you know what we're inclined to think? Well, well yeah, I guess, you, I guess you could interpret it that way. And so we think, well, we need better evidence, right? So let's try something else. Let's see how canyons can form quickly. Mount St. Helens demonstrated that. Cut a canyon 140th, the scale of the Grand Canyon, in a matter of hours. He says, well, yeah, but just because that canyon formed that way doesn't mean the Grand Canyon formed that way. It took millions of years. We think, well, yeah, I guess we don't know, right? And, well, look, rock layers can be deposited quickly. Mount St. Helens proved that. Well, just because those rock layers were laid down quickly doesn't mean these ones were, right? Well, yeah, I guess you could say that. But look, animals, they reproduce according to their kinds. He says, well, yeah, but given enough time, one kind will change into another. We just haven't lived long enough to really observe that yet. But look, DNA, it's got information in it. That never comes about by chance. He says, well, yeah, as far as we know, but there could be some unknown mechanism that generates that information. Just give us time. Science will we'll discover it. But look, look, we find in outer space, we find things like comets that we know can't last billions of years. He says, no problem. There's an Oort cloud that makes new ones. You see what I'm saying here? Now, it's not wrong to show people how evidence confirms the Bible. In fact, I think we should do some of this. I give this presentation, people think, well, you, sh you, know, you should ignore evidence. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just pointing out it's not conclusive. I think we should show people that, yes, there's, there is a biblical way to look at the evidence. And why should we do that? Because most people haven't thought about that. They've been trained to look at the evidence from the secular perspective, and they don't realize there is a biblical way to look at the evidence. And so don't get me wrong, there is value in showing people how, how evidence confirms what the Bible teaches. But it doesn't prove anything, does it? Right? I mean, if I'm up against a very clever critic, he'll be able to come up with a rescuing device for every line of evidence that I present. And that's reasonable for him to do so because he has a worldview that he wants to defend. And so you see what I need to do is challenge his worldview. It's, it's fine to show people evidence. That's good and how the Bible makes sense of it. But this by itself will not resolve a debate over worldviews because a person's worldview tells them how to interpret the evidence. And I think the reason it's tough for us to get this a lot of times is because we tend to spend most of our time with people that have the same worldview that we do or very similar, right? And if you have the same worldview, you can use evidence to change somebody's mind. And it's not that hard. If you and I had a disagreement about whether or not there were crackers in the cupboard, we could settle that by going over to the cupboard, opening it up, seeing that there are crackers there, and we agree that our senses are basically reliable, and so we come to agreement based on the evidence. That's fine. But if I'm arguing with somebody who has a different worldview, say a Hindu, who believes that the world is all illusion, it's all Maya, is showing him the crackers, is that going to settle the debate? No, because he's going to say, well, that's illusion too, you see. And so when people have different worldviews, you can't just throw evidence at them and expect them to convert. It's not going to work. Somehow we have to argue that biblical presuppositions are the right presuppositions through which to interpret the evidence. And that's something we're not used to doing for the most part. How am I going to do that? So I'm standing over here on my biblical presuppositions. The Bible's the infallible word of God. And as a result, God made me in his image. He made my senses. They're reliable and so on. The evolutionist is standing on some secular presuppositions. Nature's all that there is, perhaps, or strict empiricism, something like that. And then we were evaluating the evidence very differently. How do I argue that these are the correct? How, how am I going to get anywhere with them? And before I give you the right answer, I want to give you the wrong answer. 
Because a lot of times people will say, well, the way we answer this question is we meet on neutral ground. And a lot of times the secularist will propose that. He'll say, well, granted, there are a lot of things we disagree on, but there are some presuppositions that are sort of neutral. They're not Christian. They're not non-Christian. They're kind of in the middle. And, uh, and we can agree on those, right? And so let's meet in the middle here on neutral ground, and then we'll, and we'll leave out things that we disagree on. And he says, and I certainly don't believe the Bible is the word of God. So you have to leave that out of the discussion. And that is a trap that many Christians fall into because that sounds so reasonable on the surface. Yeah, if you don't believe the Bible, I guess I can't use that as part of the conversation, right? Well, we'll come back to that. But here's my point. The problem with neutral ground is that there's no such thing as neutral ground, right? When it comes to a worldview commitment, you can't be neutral. Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters. He didn't say you're neutral. He says, if you're not with me, you're against me. There's not a neutral position there. The mindset on the flesh is, what, neutral toward God? No, it's hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to love. God's not even able to do so. Unbelievers are not even able to be neutral. They are hostile to God. You adulteresses do not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You get in the picture? According to Scripture, you're God's friend or you're his enemy. You're with him, you're against him. You're gathering, you're scattering. There is no neutral. Not when it comes to a faith commitment. And so uh, Dr. Bonson liked to call the, uh, this the pretended neutrality fallacy, the idea that people would like to pretend, especially secularists, like to pretend they're very neutral. But you're going to have to point out to them that in saying they're neutral, they've already said the Bible's wrong because the Bible says there's no neutral, right? Did you follow that? I mean, the Bible says there's no neutral. And if you say, well, yes, there is neutral and I'm neutral, you've just said the Bible's wrong, in which case you're not being neutral. You've made a decision, you see. The nature of the claim forces us to be with Christ or against him. So there is no neutral ground. Neutral ground is a non-biblical and therefore non-neutral idea. Isn't that ironic? Neutrality is a non-neutral idea. And so if you fall for that, you're in trouble because the secularist says, hey, let's meet on neutral ground and uh, leave the Bible out because that's something we don't agree on, right? And so the Christian says, yeah, I guess we can do that. Leave the Bible out of the discussion and we'll prove that God exists some other way or whatever, using these neutral presuppositions. But the Bible says there are no neutral presuppositions. Neutrality is a secular concept. It's not a biblical concept. The Bible says there's no such thing. And if you agree to those terms, you're pretty well lost at the outset. Because isn't the debate really about whether or not this is true? Isn't that the point of, of apologetics? We're defending the Bible as the word of God. We're saying this is the inerrant word of God. And you're starting the debate by saying the Bible is wrong about neutrality. Think about that. You think it's wise to start a debate by immediately conceding defeat? You cannot defend biblical authority by immediately abandoning biblical authority. That's not going to work. Secularists like to think that they're very neutral. And they're going to want you to be neutral too. Two things to remember when people ask you to be neutral. One, they're not. Two, you shouldn't be. Okay? No one is neutral, and you haven't been called to be neutral. You've been called to be Christians. And we're supposed to stand on God's word in everything that we do. The, uh, the, the man of God, the Bible tells us, is to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. You see, we stand on God's word even when we're confronting those people who deny it. And they'll say, you can't do that. You can't stand on what you're trying to defend. That's circular reasoning. 
which shows that they really don't understand what circular reasoning is. But in any case, meanwhile, they're standing on evolution while defending it. It seems to me you can stand on what you're trying to defend. In fact, in battle, you can stand on a hill while you're defending the hill, right? That's the best place to be. You can stand on what you're trying to defend. There's nothing inherently illogical about that. In fact, if it's an alternate, we'll, we'll see in the, the upcoming weeks that if it's an ultimate standard, you have to stand on what you're defending. Because there's nothing else, there's nothing, there's no greater standard by which you could defend it. But uh, that's, a little, that's a little too philosophical for this afternoon. We'll get into that in the next few weeks, perhaps. But uh, in any case, uh, yeah, you can, you can stand on what you're defending. Have you ever had something in your eye, and you can, you can go to a mirror and use your eye to examine your eye and correct your eye? Isn't that right? There's nothing illogical about that. We do it all the time. There's nothing illogical about standing on God's word while you're defending it, and we should do that. Okay, so I've given you two wrong answers. We can't just throw evidence at each other. That won't work, because we each interpret it according to our own worldview. And we can't stand on neutral ground, because there is no neutral ground. Right? So what's the right answer? How do we show that biblical presuppositions are correct and secular ones are incorrect? And the, the way we show that is by showing that biblical presuppositions make it possible for us to know things. And that's a different kind of an argument. But boy, is it powerful. Biblical presuppositions make sense of the universe around us, and they allow us to know things about the universe around us. And I know this is a good argument because it's scriptural. The Bible tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You want to start to know anything, it has to come from God, and by implication, a reverential submission to his presuppositions. And the flip side is, you reject biblical presuppositions, the Bible says you're a fool. That doesn't mean you're unintelligent, but it does mean that your way of thinking is silly, it's foolish, it's not fruitful, you're not using your brain in the way that God intended, and you're going to come up with silly ideas as a result. Because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. A lot of people don't think about how it is that we know things, but really all knowledge is in Christ, the Bible tells us. Everything that is knowable is in God, right? All truth is in him. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? All truth is in him, which means in order for us to know anything, God would have to give some of it to us, right? And he has. He's made us in his image, and he's given us, he's given us bits of truth. God is the source of all truth. We're the recipients of some truth. Now, in the secular worldview, you can't have knowledge, and we'll talk about why that is. But my point is that knowledge comes from God and only makes sense in light of what the Bible teaches. Now, some of you might say, but wait a minute, I have some non-Christian friends, and they do know some things, right? And they don't have a Christian worldview. Well, the Bible tells us why that is. Non-Christians do know God. They don't have a saving faith in God. They don't know him in the way that we do, but they know of him. The Bible tells us that. The wrath of God, right, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who, what, who, don't, who just don't know any better? No, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You see, unbelievers are made in God's image, and God's hardwired them with knowledge of himself. And so unbelievers do have knowledge of God because the Bible's true, but they suppress that truth and unrighteousness. But God's made himself known to them in such a way that when they look into the creation of the world, they recognize that it's, that it's been made by God. They see God's power in what he's made. They're hardwired to understand that so that there's no excuse. It's interesting the way it's worded in Greek, too, because the, the expression without excuse and apologia, meaning without an apologetic. So you see, the way we do apologetics is to realize that unbelievers have none. They have no defense of their faith. The Bible tells us that. 
So you see, my argument for the Christian worldview, my argument that the Bible must be true is because the Bible alone makes it possible for us to know anything. And wouldn't you agree we do know some things? We know some things. You know that uh, Sunday comes after Saturday, and you know that you're alive. And I mean, there's some things that you know. But you see, if the Bible weren't true, you couldn't know anything at all. A lot of people don't think through these issues, but have you ever considered what does it take for you to know something? How do you, how do you know something? There's a whole field in philosophy, epistemology. How do we know what we know? How is truth known? Do you realize the universe has to be a certain way in order for you to have knowledge of it? It would have to be kind of organized, right? If the universe were totally chaotic, you couldn't know anything about it, right? Because it, it would just immediately change and you wouldn't have any knowledge of it. You'd have to, in order to know something, you'd have to have a mind. That's certainly true. And your mind has to be capable of rational thought. You have to be able to consider the various options and choose the best. The universe would have to be sort of organized in a consistent way so that I could apply what I learned in the past to what, to what ha- is going to happen in the future, likely is going to happen in the future. You use that every day. You don't even think about it, but you use it. Right? When you get out of bed, you assume that gravity will hold down as it did yesterday. It doesn't occur to you that, hey, today, maybe gravity will send me hurtling toward the ceiling. It doesn't even occur to you, right? Because God upholds things in a consistent way. All of the things that we rely on for knowledge, like the reliability of our senses, stem from the Christian worldview. God made my senses, therefore, they're going to be reliable. Maybe not perfectly because of the fall and so on, but, but nonetheless, there's, I can have a degree of reliability in my, of confidence in my senses, I would expect there to be patterns in nature to discover because God has created nature and has imposed order on it, you see. And so all of these things make sense in light of what the Bible teaches. And there's going to be three that I'm going to focus in on in this series. We're going to talk about laws of logic and how they are rooted in the nature of God. We're going to talk about uniformity in nature, the idea that there's patterns to be discovered in nature. And we're going to talk about absolute morality. And today I'm just going to focus in on one of those. Okay, I'm going to focus in on morality. Now, all of these three, you realize these are necessary for us to have knowledge. Laws of logic are necessary for us to know anything about logical truths, to know, you know, about, we, we know that contradictions can't be true, right? You can't have a statement and its negation both true at the same time. That's, we have knowledge of that because it's a law of logic. Uniformity in nature is how we have knowledge of science because we can probe nature and it's consistent and so on, and so we can, we can know that. And morality is how we have knowledge of ethics, how we know what's right and what's wrong. And what presuppositional apologetics is all about is showing that these things only make sense if God's word is true. Now, my point is not that unbelievers don't believe in these things, because in fact they do. My point is that on their professed worldview, they would have no foundation for believing in them. And so when the atheist says, but but I, I use laws of logic all the time, I, I'm going to say, well, you shouldn't, because on your worldview, they don't make any sense. How can you have laws without a lawgiver, right? He said, but I'm a moral person, basically. And I say, well, uh, that doesn't make sense on your worldview because you're just rearranged pawn scum in your worldview. Why should, why should you obey any particular laws of right and wrong, you see? And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at these two worldviews. And rather than just looking at the surface, which is what a lot of people like to do, just take your pick. Do you like blue? Do you like flame color? Do you like biblical worldview or secular? Take your pick. But we're going to find when we examine the biblical worldview, it can lead to knowledge. It works. It makes knowledge possible. It can go somewhere. The secular worldview, when we examine it carefully, can't possibly work. It can't lead to knowledge because it's inconsistent with itself. 
and I'll give you a couple quick examples of this. All things are relative. There are no absolutes. Now, the way you can refute that is with an internal critique. You show, you, you apply the standard to itself and show that it's inconsistent, right? All things are relative. There are no absolutes. Do you realize that's an absolute statement? So I'm going to ask, are you absolutely certain? If he says yes, then he proves my point, right, that absolutes exist. And if he says no, then I, I, I still win, right, because he's not sure about what he claimed. All truth claims are proved by empirical observation. If you want to know something, you better go out and look and see it with your own eyes. What's the problem with that? How do you know the statement itself is true? Did you prove the statement by empirical observation? You see, the statement that all truth claims are proved by empirical observation is itself a truth claim that is not proved by empirical observation. No one has observed all truth claims. And so you can't possibly know by observation that all truth claims are proved by observation. You see, it's self-refuting. If it were true, you shouldn't believe it. Isn't that interesting? It, boy, you learn to see these when you start understanding these, these non-biblical worldviews. All you have to do is light the match and push the unbeliever to be consistent with what he says he believes, and it will come back and blow itself up every time. And so here I am standing on my biblical presuppositions, my secular friends standing on those secular ones, and it might seem like we can't get anywhere because we know there's no neutral ground. But the thing to realize is secular presuppositions will not make knowledge possible. They're sinking sand. That's the way the Bible puts it. And when that sand dissolves away, the unbeliever's left in a rather awkward position. What's he going to do? He can't stand on his own worldview because it won't make knowledge possible. It doesn't make sense of the fact that our senses are reliable or that there are laws of logic and so on. And so what he's going to do is he's going to stand on the Christian worldview. Yes, unbelievers will stand on Christian principles because they, because they have to. They may deny being made in God's image, but they cannot escape being made in God's image, and therefore they have to live according to God's laws if they're going to survive in this universe. And so they will inconsistently borrow Christian principles to support their own. Yes, unbelievers do believe in laws of logic, even though laws of logic belong to God. Yes, they do believe in uniformity in nature because God upholds the universe in a consistent way. Yes, they do believe in absolute morality, having been made in God's image and having the awareness of God's will. But you see, those are Christian presuppositions. They're going to deny that. They're going to say, oh, no, laws of logic, that's not a Christian presupposition. And I'm going to show you how you can demonstrate that they really are. But nonetheless, that's their claim, you see. And we're just going to point out, well, actually, sir, you're standing on God's property. You either need to get saved or stop trespassing. And we pray that you'll get saved, but that's between you and God. We're just here to point out the inconsistency. You can think of a debate over Christianity a lot like a debate on the existence of air. And I want, this, I want this to be, this will be my last major point. Like, I want you to take this home with you. A debate on Christianity is a lot like a debate on air. Can you imagine two people arguing whether or not air exists? What would the critic of air say? He's, all, he's up there making all these elaborate arguments. Oh, there's no such thing as air. All the while breathing air and expecting that we can hear his argument as the sound is transmitted through the air. You see the problem? The critic of air must use air in order to make a case against air. The fact that he's able to make his argument proves that his argument is wrong. Likewise, the critic of the Bible must use biblical presuppositions in order to argue against the Bible. The fact that he's able to make his argument proves that his argument is wrong. Isn't that interesting? And I'm going to really focus in uh, next week. We won't do any more of this today. I'm going to skip through some of these. But we'll talk about each of those three uh, presuppositions, the laws of logic, 
uh, ethics, morality, and then uniformity in nature. And we'll see how in all those cases, only the biblical worldview can make sense of those things. And yet, non-Christians try to use those very principles, which are Christian principles, to argue against Christianity. If they were successful, they would lose the very ground on which they were standing, you see. And so their thinking is very inconsistent. And if you get that, you can agree with the Apostle Paul and say, where's the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Indeed, he has. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That's the key. Recognize how everything goes back to Christ. And then you'll be ready always to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. And, and by the way, this is a very powerful method, and we need to remember the last part of that verse. Because you're going to find very quickly you can destroy your enemy's argument. Right? And we need to remember that, well, he's, even though he is God's enemy, God may want to save that person. So we need to treat that person with dignity and respect. Because he's made in the image of God, too. And frankly, we've all been the fool at one point, right? We've all been God's enemy at one point. And if he hadn't saved us, we'd still be God's enemy. So we need to remember meekness and fear. Yes, you can, you can bash your opponent over the head with this, but you shouldn't. You need to destroy their argument and then give them a hand and say, hey, I've been in the same place. And if, if God hadn't saved me, I'd still be in the same place. Hmm. It doesn't take long to get this, but the key is to stand on God's word and your thinking. And then we'll see next week. I'm going to again flesh that out a little bit because I know this is, this is a lot to take in in just 50 minutes. But uh, it really is a very powerful technique. I've been able to teach this method to teenagers in one week. And by the end of the week, they've got it. And I give them some really hard, I give them some arguments that critics have made, actual critics have made, and they, they just destroy them. And it's, it's very gratifying to see that, that there are, students out there who really know how to defend the Christian faith. And so my goal is at the end of the series, you'll be, first of all, you'll be convinced that this is really the powerful method that I've claimed it is. And secondly, that you'll all be able and willing to go out and use this. And we'll see a lot of people want of the kingdom. Apologetics is a necessary first step. It's not, it's not pre-evangelism. It's part of evangelism, right? Because the goal of apologetics is always we want, we want people to be saved. But it's, it's very necessary in our culture to show people that the Bible really is true and can be trusted and then the gospel message uh, will make sense. Uh, books you might want to read up on this topic. I'm going to be going through kind of the, a lot of this book, which is The Ultimate Proof of Creation. And I wrote it covering the topics I'm going to cover this week. And so I'll go through uh, some of these things in depth. And I, I know I talk kind of fast, but I wrote the book really slow, so you can take your time with it. <laughs> and, uh, and there are examples in the back as well. Understanding Genesis, applying this method. What, what about... Christians who are compromised, they're, they're, they're Christians, but they're not reading the Bible in the proper way. You can use the same method uh, to, to destroy their arguments as well. And that's what this book is all about, Understanding Genesis. And check us out on the web, icr.org, and you might take a look at my blog as well, where I, where I interact with people using the very method that I've uh, introduced to you today. So thank you very much. Really appreciate it.